I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Nathan Hill is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. His new novel, Wellness, out just now, has been one of the most anticipated books of the year. Following his critically acclaimed The Knicks, Wellness tells the story of a marriage at its inception and then into its future. As you'll hear on what follows from his appearance recorded at Books and Books two days after Wellness was selected by Oprah for her book club, Nathan's humor, poignancy, and flat-out brilliant writing is on full display in the pages of his new novel. Well, there's a lot to celebrate today with Nathan being with us. Um, one of the great things to celebrate, as many of you have heard, that um, this amazing book, Wellness, has been selected as Oprah's 104th book just, what, two days ago or three days ago? So we should, that's something very cool, too. So while we're in, in, a, in, a, in a bookstore setting, this may be the last time he'll be able to be in a bookstore setting. Um, we hope for him and his wife, who's lovely wife, who's with us as well. Um, it, and you know, Oprah's taste is always so exquisite, and no different than with this book. And the other remarkable thing is that I asked Nathan earlier, and he knew about this since March. Can you imagine holding that in for as long as he had to hold that in without telling anybody? So it's just a brilliant, brilliant thing. It brings, brings so much joy to us booksellers to know that when a, book, a good book is selected that so many more people will also get a chance to read it. The other thing about Nathan, you, those of you may know, you know, his marvelous book, The Knicks, which you know, got wonderful reviews, was a bestseller. I think Entertainment Weekly had it as one of its best books of the year as well as others. Um, the Knicks has been followed by this wonderful book called Wellness, which he'll be talking about tonight. And over the course of his literary life, 
Uh, Nathan has also picked up some amazing fans. And one of those fans is our very own Judy Bloom, right? Judy Bloom can't say enough about Nathan, this book, Nick's. In fact, I was on the phone with her about a week or two ago about something completely different. And said, by the way, have you read Wellness Science? She went on for about 10 minutes. So by way, I'm going to do something a little unusual as my introduction. Imagine my deep voice being the voice of Judy Bloom. All right, I know it's going to be a little hard. But this is what Judy Bloom has to say about, well, I hope I don't embarrass you too much. But this is what Judy Bloom has to say about wellness. If you loved Nathan Hill's first novel, The Nicks, as much as I did, and you've been waiting seven long years for his next, as I have, rejoice. You won't be disappointed. This brilliant storyteller has done it again. At its core, Wellness is a bittersweet, poignant, witty novel about marriage and the pursuit of health and happiness. Expansive, tender, a reflection of life in America in the 21st century. Yet it's also a send-up of gentrification, toxic internet culture, modern parenting. It even explores briefly polyamory and what a scene that is. It's from Judy Bloom. <laughs> polyamory, which I'm sure he will talk about. I'm not going to be explaining it to anybody. Um, the story had me laughing while cringing when Jack and Elizabeth put their money down on a forever home. It reminded me of my early marriage when friends asked one another, is this your first house or your final house? If only we'd known then what was ahead of us. We come to know Jack and Elizabeth intimately, from being young and madly in love to being married lovers, to 20 years down the road when they have an eight-year-old son. We're on this journey with them, getting to know the families they left behind to the family they become. Wellness is compelling and quirky and, yes, funny, because this is Nathan Hill writing. But it sometimes broke my heart. It goes deep but never tries too hard never shouts, look at me. There are a few tricky diversions along the way. Don't let them stop you. If they do, skip them. <laughs> Judy is un unbelievable. There's only one Judy Bloom. And come back later. But don't skip anything having to do with Jack or Elizabeth. They are unforgettable characters. There's a lot to think about, a lot to remind us of who we were and how we became who we are. If I belong to a book club... I'd want us to read this book, to talk about this book. Ultimately, quote, this stunning novel of ideas never loses sight of its humanity, end quote. I'm quoting Publishers Weekly here because there's no way I can say it better except to tell you I'm going to read it again, <laughs> starting now. <laughs> the words of Judy Bloom. what better way to introduce Nathan Hill? She's the best. Isn't she, isn't she the best? <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, I, I live in Naples, just across the state. Uh, and yeah, yeah, who said that? All right. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, uh, we don't have an independent bookstore, so I've always kind of thought this is, I've always kind of considered this one my local indie. So even though it's two hours away, I kind of feel like I love this place so much. And uh, and so I'm, I'm really happy to be invited uh, and, and really happy for everybody to come out. Yeah, Oprah 
Oprah contacted me in March, uh, and I'm so happy I can finally tell the story. Um, I, I was on a I was on a Zoom call with my with my publisher. It was the second or third time we scheduled it because they wanted to keep it a big surprise, uh, and uh, and so they were like, we 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 want to have the Zoom meeting, and I was like, well, what's the meeting about? And they're like, oh, nothing. <laughs> and I was like. Well, I'm busy. I had like tennis practice. I was like, I'm busy. And I did not know that this was like, this was the one spot in the week that Oprah had free. And had I known that, of course, I would have skipped tennis practice. But, but I didn't know that. So I was like, well, no, I'm, it's, if, we're, if the meeting's not about anything, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to practice. And so they're like, okay, how about Friday at like three? So I was like, okay. Friday at three rolls around. I get a, a text. We're pushing it back to four. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm like, get a text an hour later, we're pushing it back to five. And like, if you're getting pushed back late on a Friday, you're like, I am so unimportant. <laughs> like, I'm so like, they don't care about me at all. I'm the last thing they have to, you know, put in the in the bag before going on their weekends. Um, and, uh, and then I get on the Zoom call and it's just my publicist. Um, and she's like, can we record this for all the people who can't make the meeting? And I'm thinking like, they're skipping the meeting now? And I'm just like, this is just getting worse and worse and worse. And I was like, fine, record it. And I'm kind of annoyed by now. And then she's like, oh, there's one more person joining the meeting. And then the entire screen was taken up by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and she's like saying these, she had a copy of my book. I didn't even have a printed copy of my book at that point. Somehow she had it. I still don't know how that happened. And she said that she wanted to pick the book for her book club. And we had a nice, a really nice chat. Uh, Jenny was in the kitchen making a sandwich. I ran out. I was like, I just zoomed with Oprah and then ran back into my office. And I think she was just like, what? You know, um, and uh, and then we had to keep the secret for six months until just this last Tuesday. Um, and uh, not even my parents knew about it. The nice, fun thing that happened was I uh, I was like, hey, you should watch CBS tomorrow at approximately 8, 12 a.m. <laughs> And then, and then that morning, I was like, hey, you want to Zoom while you're watching it? Because I had taped it the week before. So I was home. I could Zoom with them. And they're like, OK. And then I started recording. Uh, and, and they're like, why are you recording our Zoom? And I'm just like, just hold on. And then all of a sudden, Oprah showed up. And they started crying. And we started crying. It was a very nice moment. I was, I was happy to be able to give that to my parents because I, my, my novels are full of just rotten parents, you know? And <laughs> mine are actually pretty great, you know? So, so yeah, I, uh, I, I was happy to be able to give them a gift. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've made them feel defensive, I think, from my novels. Um, anyway, so that's the Oprah story, uh, and uh, yeah, and we just we just announced on Tuesday, and she's she's lovely. She is so lovely. Um, uh, I w I thought I'd read a little bit from the from near the beginning of the book, um, and uh, kind of tell you a little bit about what the book is about, and then leave a lot of time for questions, and I'd be happy to you know answer questions you might have. Uh, wellness is a story. It's a marriage story. Um, it, is, uh, it is about Jack and Elizabeth, and uh, when we first meet them, they're, they're young dreamers who have come to Chicago in the early 90s, and they meet in Chicago's underground music scene and quickly fall in love. Uh, and, uh, and Jack is from uh, the Plains. He's from uh, the Flint Hills of Kansas, uh, which is a, uh, a place I spent some time in uh, when I was in high school. Elizabeth is from a very wealthy uh, family in Connecticut. Um, generational wealth, and they're both fleeing for one reason or another, kind of becoming orphans in Chicago, and this is where they meet and kind of find this, like, kindred spirit. Um, and the chapter I'm going to read from right now uh, is uh, their first meeting. 
Uh, they've been staring at each other across an alley because their apartment windows face each other. And this was inspired by this actual apartment I had when I first moved to Queens, New York, back in like 2000. Another? Woo, all right. <laughs> uh, Queens, New York uh, in, oh goodness, that was like 2004, I think. And, um, and I had this apartment, and it's, it's one window looked out into this wall of other windows, into other apartments. And I kind of imagined uh, uh, like two people kind of lonely, sad, but glimpsing each other across the way and, and slowly falling in love. And so I wrote that as a short story and published it and kind of forgot about it until 15 years later. And I was like, I wonder what would have happened with that couple. And so I started a new story. And so between chapter one and chapter two, there's, in my life, 15 years past, but in the book, it's just, you know, the next day. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm going to read to you uh, from the third chapter of the book, which is when they, they, they've been staring at each other from across the way. They've been kind of fantasizing about finally meeting, and this is when they finally meet. She's standing in the far back corner of another loud bar, invited here by another guy of large opinions. Here to see another band she's told she must love. Tonight, she's at the Empty Bottle, that bar on Western Avenue with the big sign out front for old-style beer and an awning that says music, friendly, dancing. Right now, only one of those three things seems accurate. There is indeed music, though it is not danceable, and it is certainly not friendly. She's listening to a band she doesn't know the name of because she could not hear it above the noise of the band. Her date yelled it at her, the band's name, inches from her ear, twice, but no luck. The band's drummer and lead guitarist both seem obsessed with preventing any behavior that isn't the strict paying of total attention to them. Even the song's lyrics, which feature something about the lead singer's world-sundering spiritual pain and disaffection, are mostly lost in a bellow of power chords, while the manic drummer seems capable of only one simple maneuver, and it involves a lot of cymbal. People stand around not so much dancing as flinching in rhythm. Drinks at the bar must be ordered via gesture. Whenever the door opens, there's a burst of cold air, and so she's still wearing her scarf, her mittens, her woolen winter hat, which she pulls way down over her ears to muffle the onstage pandemonium by a few blessed decibels. Just outside are roughly half the bar's patrons, those who chose the cold over the noise. They stand stiffly, their arms and legs pulled tight to their torsos, mummies out in the snow. It's the kind of Chicago deep winter evening that's so beyond frigid, it causes despair. So bitter, it triggers spontaneous sidewalk lamentation. It's cold, the people out there say, stamping their feet. It's the kind of cold that gets into your boots and stays there all night. The band she's listening to is not the band she came here for. The last act is allegedly tonight's big draw, though her date refuses to, to, to tell her anything about it. He doesn't want to spoil it for her. He wants her experience of listening to this music for the first time to be, he says, pristine. He's managing her entire experience, and he probably thinks she appreciates it. She stands next to him, sips her beer, and unable to converse due to the surrounding ruckus, she waits. The walls of the empty bottle are brick and covered in most places by posters or flyers or stickers in such quantity and density that it causes a kind of cognitive overload, looking at them too closely. The ceiling is tin-tiled except for the area above the stage, where sheets of foam sound absorbers, those shaped like egg cartons, hang a few feet over the musicians' heads. 
The stage is painted matte black and flanked by stacks of enormous amplifiers. At the bar, there are a total of nine beers on tap, and they all cost $1.50. It's one, of those set, it's one of several local venues known for serious music that she's recently been persuaded to visit, invited by guys eager to impress her. Tonight's guy, serious, studied, somber, a particular gravitas that one might call clenched. An upperclassman whose blonde hair is parted down his scalp's exact middle. John Lennon glasses, patterned sweater over differently patterned shirt, name of Bradley, call me Brad had sat down next to her in the, this morning's microeconomics lecture, the arms of their big winter coats pressing into each other the full 50 minutes, the dirty snowmelt puddles under their respective boots eventually joining as one. After the lecture, which was a deep dive into expected utility and risk aversion and how people make choices in conditions of uncertain information, she could feel him looking at her as they packed up, and when she glanced at him, he gave her this big, exasperated roll of the eyes and said, Boring. And she smiled at that, even though she didn't find the class boring at all. And, she followed her, and he followed her out of the lecture hall, asking if she had plans tonight, because if she didn't, there was this brilliant new band playing at the Empty Bottle, where he happened to know the bartender, the implication being that she could drink despite being underage. And when she express, expressed a hint of interest, he got all elaborate, told her how she absolutely needed to hear this band right now, tonight, when the band's music was still purer, before word got out about them, before the malevolent forces of popularity and money changed them and ruined them. So, okay, fine, she agreed to meet Brad here at nine. And when she arrived, he ordered beers and said, so, you like music? And she said, sure, I like music. And then he basically forced her to prove it. He began testing her. Do you know this band? Do you know that band? Fugazi, Pavement, The Replacements, Big Star, Tortoise, Pixies, Husker Du, pronouncing this last one so exactingly that she could actually hear the umlauts. And when, and when she didn't know a single one of them, he shook his head pityingly and then offered, of course, to teach her. It turned out that Call Me Brad had a large collection of rare vinyl that he really wanted to tell her about and wanted even more to show her in person back at his place, a full wall of his apartment dedicated to only the most scarce, most genius, most iconoclastic records, sacred records that almost nobody else had heard of or properly appreciated. Honestly, she had stopped listening. <laughs> Brad required no more encouragement to continue monologuing. The sexual anxiety was radiating off him, a throbbing, low-grade panic. And so her attention just kind of detached until the band's expressive guitarist interrupted with a strenuous riff, whereupon Brad shut up and the howling set began. What she hasn't told Brad is that the only reason the rumor of a brilliant new band piqued her interest was the high probability of seeing him, the boy in the window, the boy from across the alley, at the show. And indeed, she walked in tonight, and there he was, up in the front row with his camera, and she felt a kind of heaving sensation in her gut that might be the experience people are describing when they say, my heart leapt. Though that description sounds pleasant and enjoyable, certainly much more enjoyable than this current sensation, which is less like leaping and more like being liquefied. Whenever she sees him out in the world, she tends to become shy, even though she does not consider herself a shy person. She'll spot him late at night at the empty bottle, or Rainbow Club, or Lounge Axe, or Phyllis's Musical Inn with his camera at work. And she'll watch him until her scrutiny and interest become unbearable. Why don't you notice me? It feels like there's a spotlight on her face that gets brighter the longer she stares at him, but he never sees it. He's always up in the front row, engrossed with his camera, shooting from his knees up at lead singers and solo guitarists to make them look, in his photos, monumental. 
she's seen his work on the internet, one of those electronic bulletin boards, which is also how she finally figured out his name, Photography by Jack Baker. He's always up there by the stage, sometimes even on stage, shooting the crowd from the position of the drummer. Whenever the best acts are playing, the locally famous bands that he usually leaves the bar with, which convinces her that he is firmly out of her league. She is, here in Chicago, a nobody. She does not get invited to the after parties. She knows are elsewhere happening, and she knows they're happening because she's seen them on that bulletin board. Photos by Jack Baker capturing debaucheries occurring somewhere in the neighborhood who knows where. Is there any worse anguish than this, to know that fun is being had but not being invited to also have it? Her name is Elizabeth Augustine, of the Litchfield Augustines. Though her family's reputation holds cachet only in particular circles, and these circles do not extend way out here. She's merely an anonymous student now, a freshman at DePaul, a lowly outsider stuck in the far back corner, a woman not exactly plugged into the local music scene, and so to know where she might find Jack Baker and the rest of the neighborhood's in-crowd, she needs the help of aficionados, guys like Brad, who now leans into her during a subdued moment when the guitarist is tuning and explains certain things about tonight's brilliant band, how their sound is distinct from rock or alternative or grunge in ways she knows she can't identify. It all sounds like noise to her, but Brad insists that no, in fact, the Seattle sound now taking over the radio and billboard charts is nothing like the Chicago sound, which he says is less commercial, more true to native jazz roots, less mainstream, more indie. It's a break from East Coast hardcore, which sold out long ago, and a break from West Coast grunge, which is right now in the process of selling out. It is its own thing, nurtured in forgotten flyover country, unmolested by the larger moneyed interest. She has never before thought about a rock song's terroir, but she has been giving a lot of thought lately to the crippling effects of money, and in fact escaping the greed and wealth of her family, and the associated inhuman behavior and endless striving and competitive immolation that such greed and wealth demands had been one of the primary reasons she left everyone she ever knew and came to Chicago. It would be, she vowed, a move. She had promised herself, even before arriving in the city, that she would stay here for good, that she would at last build a permanent life, her own life, a compassionate and decent life. This after a childhood of ceaseless moving, she had spent her adolescence living in the wealthy outer suburbs of the big, big East Coast metros, attending innumerable private day schools, moving from place to place to place as her father marauded this company, then that company, auditing, acquiring, raiding, poaching, liquidating, cashing in, moving on, profiting wildly while leaving nothing behind but insolvency and angry litigants, which was something of a family tradition. And so she was delighted to find this particular crowd in Chicago who rejected such crass mercantilism. Anyone who pursued wealth was shunned for selling out, cast aside for being a sheep. She does not want to be a sellout. She does not want to be a sheep. And yet, she'd really like to be invited to those parties. The band, meanwhile, kicks into its next noisy offering, and Jack photographs the lead singer, shooting him first from the side, in profile, then from behind, then from down in front, kneeling on the dance floor, shooting upward, at which point, as if choreographed, the lead singer leans way out over the stage, microphone pressed into his lips in a pose that she is sure will look in the photo heroic. And the singer whispers something into the mic that's unintelligible now that the wanton guitarist comes in and overpowers the whole moment. She senses a kind of sibling rivalry between the singer and the guitarist. She decides there's no need to learn the name of this band, as it will almost definitely break up, and probably before spring. <laughs> Jack, meanwhile, stands and sheds his sweater, the heavy black one that's about two sizes too large for him, the sweater that's essentially his everyday winter uniform, holes worn in the back from sitting on it. 
beneath that sweater, he's wearing another thinner black sweater. What is it about this boy that's so compelling to her? It's surely not just that he happens to live across the alley. She can imagine that most guys would prompt her to do nothing more than close the curtains. But with this boy, there's an unaccountable feeling of recognition, like he has some important quality that she's looking for but cannot quite name. Elizabeth had come to Chicago intending to melt with full abandon into its lively, lively bohemia, to drink with poets and sleep with artists, or vice versa, whatever. And not even good poets or good artists. The only criteria she has for going home with a guy is that he is a good and interesting and selfless man who deserves it, which is a condition the guys of Chicago had thus, fail, thus far failed to meet. But the boy in the window seems different. He exudes a kindness and gentleness and restraint that's a radical departure from the world-dominating ethos she moved to Chicago to escape. Jack Baker is considerate, or at least she believes him to be considerate, believes he would be a considerate person, a considerate lover. She believes this because of the many private scenes she's witnessed from her place at the window, his many small moments of careful attentiveness to the books of literature and poetry and philosophy he reads late into the night, the way he patiently looks at so many photo negatives until he's found the right one, the way he hides sheepishly, sheepishly behind his long bangs. Even his choice of career, photographer, strikes her as pleasingly self-effacing. He will always be on the outskirts, watching. By definition, the photographer will never be the center of attention. She's dated guys who are always the center of attention. Guys like these guys up on stage, guys like Brad, and she's found that eventually their need becomes crushing. The band finishes the set, finally, with a great detonative roar that's similar to its ongoing previous roar, except for the strength and frequency of its cymbal banging. It's impossible to crescendo when you've been at max volume the whole time, so the band just goes faster, their beat getting so compressed that everything coming out of those big amps turns to mush. And then with a final orgasmic bucking of the guitarist's hips, they come to their screeching end, at which point the lead singer, in what is his first intelligible speech of the night, says, Thank you, Chicago! As if he's talking to a sold-out soldier field and not a dozen people in a dive bar hiding from the cold. The musicians unplug, and Brad turns to her and says, So, what did you think? Then he crosses his arms and waits for the answer. And Elizabeth understands that whatever her answer is, his opinion about it will be fierce. On a scale of 1 to 10, she says, How much would you say your parents loved you? <laughs> what? <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10. Wow, he says, laughing uncomfortably. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm serious. You, he says, pointing at her, shaking his hand, grinning a wide, stupid grin. You are a spitfire, you know that? You are sassy. After which he goes for more beer. <laughs> at the other end of the bar, Jack is mingling. He approaches various groups standing at the bar and says a few words, then takes their picture. She's seen these photos, too, online. Portraits of people out at bars. They remind her of that part of the society magazines back home where upward of six glossy pages, it's nothing more than snapshots of people who recently attended important local soirees and fundraisers. The difference between those photos and these being that the Chicago subjects tend to be more ironically detached. They don't smile and mostly don't even look at the camera. They have a bearing that makes it seem like they're aware their photograph is being taken, but they don't care to participate. Jack thanks them and moves along. He's walking her way now, toward the front of the bar, searching for a new subject, his gaze landing on this person, then that person, evaluating them. And Elizabeth wonders if this is the moment he'll finally notice her, the moment he'll finally want to take her picture. And she decides she does not care how obvious she is or how liquid it makes her feel inside. She's going to look at him, look directly at him. She's going to demand his attention. 
and this for some reason feels really risky and scary and threatening to her, and when his eyes sweep over her, she has this almost instinctive response to hide. It's the boldest she's ever stared at him, which is how she sees him quickly inspect her, and then just as quickly dismiss her. He moves along with no recognition or interest whatsoever. She feels in this moment sort of like someone never invited to the prom. She watches him go outside, and when he opens the door, there's that arctic surge that makes everyone around her curl up, which is when she realizes her hat is pulled down to her eyes, her scarf is covering her mouth. She is practically in disguise. (laughs) So she takes off her scarf and hat, runs her fingers through her hair, and looks out the window behind her. She brings her face right up to it, close enough to feel the chill of the outside air. She sees Jack, his figure made wavy and rippled, distorted by the thick glass. He's standing at the curb. He shoots, then sidesteps, then shoots again from a new angle, sidesteps again, shoots again. People are pretending not to notice him, and yet always angling their bodies contraposto to the camera. He's pointing that camera right at Elizabeth, but between them is the huddled crowd, the blowing snow, this cloudy block of glass, and so he hasn't seen her, or maybe he's ignoring her. She can't be sure. Just then there's a sound from the other end of the bar, a guitar playing a few simple chords, repeatedly, quietly. Elizabeth glances to the stage to see what band is next and is surprised to see it's only one woman. She's short, barely five feet tall, and blonde, skinny, young, wearing jeans with a tank top and a cream-colored cardigan, her hair in a plain shoulder-length cut. She does not, in other words, look like a rock star. Her presentation is contrary to that of the band that was up there minutes ago, all those outlandish guys. She looks so unassuming that Elizabeth thinks it's possible she's who's drunkenly taken the guitar and will soon be escorted off the stage by the bartender. But no, the bartender does not move. And at her first sound, Jack Baker comes in from the cold and immediately begins uh, photographing her. And it's clear that the girl isn't warming up, but has actually already begun her set, that she has no band and no instrumentation other than the guitar she's holding, which is not plugged into the giant speaker apparatus, but rather into one small amp at her feet. So it's hard to hear her over the small crowd that isn't shutting up. Elizabeth leans forward and listens to her, her strangely monotone voice, her song, which seems to describe a man with taste so ravenous he can no longer really appreciate anything. I bet you've long since passed understanding what it takes to be satisfied. She's not exactly singing the lyrics, but also not exactly talking. It's a peculiar timbre somewhere in between, and her pitch is not what you'd call in tune, but it's not flat either, and she strums her so modestly And she sings so matter-of-factly, without any of the ornamentation and melodrama and vocal scratch of your typical rock and roll singer dudes, when Brad returns, Elizabeth whispers, Who is this? He looks at the stage, surprised, as if he had not yet noticed anyone up there. Nobody, he says. Filler. Filler, she says. The headliners are running late. She's killing time. And with a dismissive wave, Brad resumes his discourse. This time a litany of his top five concert experiences ever. Around... Around them, people chat loudly and rudely, Elizabeth straining to hear the music. Over at the bar, the four guys from the previous band are now laughing, almost advertising how much they're ignoring this singer's performance. And this is how the short song goes. The woman strumming her unadorned guitar, her humble sound competing with the ambient noise of an indifferent crowd. Number five, Brad says, the Rolling Stones at the Silverdome. It would have been better, it would have been higher on the list, but it was 1989, and the Stones were obviously no longer at their peak, and anyway, the Silverdome is as lifeless as a mental ward. Uh Uh-huh. Number four, Soul Asylum at Metro in July, which could have easily been number three in the list, or maybe even number two if the bar weren't filled with all these yuppies yelling, Runaway Train, like it was the only song they knew. And Brand continues his long countdown, 
Elizabeth thinking that for a guy who claims to love music, Brad sure seems to also hate a lot about it. And the singer continues her song about this insatiable man who's no longer capable of happiness. And Elizabeth listens to the lyrics and giggles, at which point Brad stops his ponderous clucking and looks at her a little defensively. He's not a man who likes being laughed at and says, what's so funny? This song, Elizabeth says, it's about you. Really, he says, genuinely excited, listening finally as the woman sings speeds in her dark monotone, you're like a vine that keeps climbing higher, but all the money in the world is not enough. Brad is now thoroughly confused, but Elizabeth doesn't care. It's as if this song were written just for her, a song describing all the greed she has made it her life's mission to escape. Then the door opens, and there's that stab of cold air, and in walk three guys who could only be the headline band, dressed as eccentrically as they are. She clocks the lead singer immediately in thick plastic sunglasses and what looks to be a ruffled baby blue tuxedo shirt from the 60s, conspicuously uncool, which of course makes it really cool. The top four buttons calculatedly undone. The guys enter the bar with a swagger that makes the crowd instinctively part. They're here, Brad says. That's them. On stage, the singer wraps up her song, then shrugs as if to apologize and says, I guess that's it, to dispersed polite clapping. And Elizabeth watches as the singer packs up her guitar, and together with Jack, who had been photographing her all this time, they walk toward the bar's exit. The singer, Jack, and the singer's small entourage, all of them off to whatever wondrous after-party awaits. And she's following Jack with her eyes as Brad continues to explain why Elizabeth is so lucky to be here tonight, experiencing for the first time this new band with him, and she's nodding but continuing to stare at the baby-faced photographer, and right at the moment that Jack crosses paths with the headliners, he looks up at the band and then looks past the band at this table of nobodies in the far back corner, and his eyes lock onto Elizabeth's. She's seeing him seeing her now, now that she's without her scarf and hat, and there's this shiver of recognition between them as he smiles and waves, and she smiles and waves, and Brad looks at her, puzzled, and the relief she feels is just about knee-breaking. And what does Jack do? He walks right past the band. He walks right up to Elizabeth. He ignores the brilliant musicians and ignores the now-puckered Brad, and he extends his hand and utters the first two words he'll ever say to her. They are, come with. Thank you. So that's their meet cute. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, you know, they, uh, they, 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 they wander off and they have a lovely evening together. And, uh, and it's, it's a really kind of Romeo and Juliet moment for them. And, uh, and then the book after this isn't a spoiler. It's right there in the description. The book fast forwards 20 years and we meet them. Uh, and uh, they've been married for a long time. They're trying to uh, fund their forever home. Uh, they have a child. Uh, they're a little lonely. They're very overwhelmed. And they're looking back at these like hopeless romantics that they used to be. And they're kind of wondering, how can those people all also be us? Uh, and uh, and so the, the book then tracks them. It kind of goes back and forth in time uh, from this kind of present situation that they're in to their past. And sometimes it's the you know, back to the 90s, and sometimes it's a deeper kind of past. And the way I, I wrote it, which was a real headache producer, but I, I kind of like how it ended up, uh, is that I wanted I wanted the feeling that a reader would get reading this book to kind of be the same feeling we get getting to know the people in our lives, how we, how we get to know people forwards and backwards at the same time. You know, we get to know them forwards as we spend time with them and, like, go on dates and live with them. But we get to know them backwards as we, you know, meet their parents or see where they grew up or hear the old stories and kind of figure out who they were before we met them. And then we can kind of synthesize 
you know, who this person is. Um, and then, of course, the more and more we know someone, the more we have access to maybe the more intimate or more or more darker secrets. Uh, and so that's the experience I wanted to create in this book, that experience of getting to know someone forwards and backwards at the same time, de slowly deepening that sense of in intimacy and also uh, the characters almost trusting you more with their with their deeper, darker secrets. So that was the idea. I hope it comes off okay. I know that I, I whined to my wife many times in the kitchen that I should just be telling this chronologically because doing it this way was really, really hard. But I hope it works. I hope you. I hope you really like it. And and I'm. I'm. I would be happy to answer whatever questions anybody has. Yes. Autobiographical. Okay. The question is: this autobiographical references? <laughs> yeah. Right. I think I'm under contract to, to to when I'm talking about this book to say it's about a marriage, not mine. You know, like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 no, uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's, it's parents who are, it's about a couple who have, who are kind of new parents. And it's, it's also a kind of about the, what happens to a marriage when, when small children show up. And that was sort of, if it's at all autobiographical, it's because all of my closest friends back in Naples all weirdly had kids at like exactly the same time. So I was watching them all go through it together and they were kind of giving me a lot of insights and, and, um, frankly telling me things that maybe they shouldn't have but now they're in the book forever so <laughs> yes the question is about my publisher and whether they they knew about the the oprah news and so they could be prepared for it like publication wise and the answer is yeah in fact they're the ones who set me up on that on that zoom call to to surprise me uh so yeah they they knew before i did uh and so they've had um you know they've had their 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 crack staffs of uh, of publicity marketing people kind of on it for the last six months. So yeah, they were prepared. They were prepared for it. Very prepared. Yeah, yeah. The question is, how long did it take me to write the book? And I, there are a variety of answers to that. Like the the first chapter was written in two thousand and four, but then I I went away from it for a very very long time. Um, and it wasn't until like two thousand fourteen. I was looking for, I was kind of finishing The Knicks. The, the Knicks was published in 2016, so I was, I was about done with edits by around 2014. And um, I don't know, that was around the time that like, remember that, that era where, where people were just starting to kind of get really weird on Facebook? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I was just like, what? You're posting what? Like, you believe what? You know, and like, we weren't all kind of used to it but yet you know it was like that period and like and then all all of my friends and my, my me included we were also also like kind of seduced by a lot of like you know, oh i guess maybe we should try to cut out carbs maybe we should kind of like track our macros you know it's like and like there just seemed to be a lot of uh, stuff in the air and not all of it seemed entirely true you know and so i i was looking with my books, I like I like a book to be a container for a lot of the things that I'm thinking about. And so I was like, what's a container for a story that's about about storytelling, about belief in stories, about delusion, about fantasy? And I remembered the story I had written so many years ago, these this couple looking at each other across the way and falling in love. And for, with new eyes, like in my 40s, I was like, well, those two are naive, you know? Like they're making up all these fantasies about the one another. And I realized like, this could be a great container. Like a love story is full of fantasies. And so what better container for a book about fantasy and delusion and belief in stories than a love story. So I, I, I wrote a marriage novel that's sort of a Trojan horse for this, all this other stuff. And so I started that, the Oprah team asked me to like take pictures of like my earliest notebooks because I read everything in longhand and date everything. Um, and uh, and my earliest notebook that I started working on this book was was like October 2015. 
Uh, and so I worked on it for a little bit. Um, the Knicks came out the next year. I was on tour for the Knicks for like two years. So it was like a two year period when I didn't really work on it. And then, uh, and then, and then the pandemic and lockdown happened. So this was, this was my hobby during the pandemic. So it's, so it's off and on since kind of 2015 ish. The question is, um, uh, is about, you know, about research or getting into the mindset or like, you know, um, how do I, uh, how do I find certain characters or characteristics, uh, um, and whether they're from my own life or, 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 or not, I think, I mean, the, the, the figure of the music snob, call me Brad, uh, is, uh, is just somebody I remember from my time. You know, I, 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 I missed, so I'm writing about Wicker Park in 1993, and I kind of missed that. I was a little too young for it. I started going to Wicker Park in like 1995, 96, probably. Um, but, but there was this, there was this figure that was, 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 uh, was commonplace, both in Wicker Park and then also on the college campus that I was at at the time, who was just like the, like the sort of gatekeeper of taste, you know, and like it can be music, it can be literature, it can be movies. I mean, whatever. It's like the person who's just like, I define what's good. And like, I felt like I was always running into this guy, you know, and like, and I always felt at the time, now I just don't care. But at the time I felt really bad about it because I, I like grew up in like, you know, the suburban Midwest and rural Midwest, my, both sides of my family are like farm families. We were not cool. We, you know, we did not, we were not plugged in, you know? And uh, like my, my, my dad worked at Kmart his whole career. So that, that was my fashion, you know? So like running into these people, they, I was just like, oh my God, I'm so far behind. And they always felt, made me feel really bad. And then I just imagined what would it be like to be on a date with one? And, and like, so... <laughs> <laughs> And so that's just where that came from. <laughs> yes, there's a section in the late in the book. Um, uh, it's called the needy users, and it is a section that dramatizes the sort of breakdown of a relationship between a father and his son. And it, I guess the way that I describe it is, it tells it from the point of view of the Facebook algorithms that are making it happen, like the the the, the very algorithms that are driving these two apart. It's told from the, their point of view. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, 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 I wanted to do this because like, I don't know about you. I, I lost people to like Facebook conspiracies, like people that, um, that I, I thought I knew suddenly became somebody else on Facebook, you know, and suddenly started believing things. And I was just like, do you, do you really believe that, you know, um, crazy stuff. And, uh, and, and I lost friends that, uh, and, and, and acquaintances, like people that I valued uh, to this stuff. And one, one guy in particular, I, would, I, I, I did not like where he was going. And I, so I would like try to rebut on Facebook. He would post something and I, and I would privately message him. Just like, hey man, I don't know if you know, but, and then kind of like, kind of lay out what's going on with this thing that he's sharing. And he, he would be like, okay, okay, okay. And then that never stopped him from sharing it the next time and the next time and the next time. And like, I just couldn't. And then I realized that Facebook was intentionally showing me his posts that I might've missed from like three weeks ago. Cause it was like, oh, Nathan likes to engage. And what's really happening is we were just fighting and I was losing a friend and Facebook was like, yeah, do it, do it, do it, you know? And so, I really wanted to go into that. So I, I wrote this section and I wanted to understand how the underlying math worked. And Facebook is very protective of its algorithms, but they uh, have to patent all of them, you know, and patent applications are public documents. Uh, so you don't get the, you don't get the mathematics, but they have to explain why the mathematics is there and why it's original work that needs to be patentable. And so I read hundreds of pages of like Facebook patent applications to get a sense of what was happening underneath the hood. Um, and then, and then wrote that section after having done that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> the question is, when did I know I wanted to be a writer? Um, and I, I guess there are two, two answers to that. One answer is like really early. Like I, I wrote a choose your own adventure book when I was in third grade called The Castle of No Return uh, for like a class contest and the, and the book won and the teacher was reading it to the whole class and I was like sitting in the audience like listening to her read my book with like this feeling of pure joy, you know? That was really, and then I, I, I was always writing. I was, I was the kid who was like writing stories for the neighborhood and, and you know, other, other kids who would read them. And, and um, but like, I didn't, I actually did not know you could like make a living at it. You could study it even, you know, like I, n nobody in, in either sides of my family ever went into the arts. It just wasn't, it's just, I'm very weird, you know? And so like, I, I, when I went to college, I went for, I studied biomedical engineering. That was my major for like two years. And I, I, I happened to dumb luck my way into going to the University of Iowa. And I got there and they were like, do you know about the writer's workshop? And I was like, what's the writer's workshop? And they're like, it's like, it's like the most historic creative writing program in the world. And I was like, you can study creative writing. You can do that. I was really that dumb, you know? And so you could, you could send it, you could apply to a class at Iowa as an undergrad that would be taught by somebody in the workshop. And so I applied and it was accepted. And so I got, and suddenly like I took this creative writing class from, from a novelist named Chris Adrian, who was, who was a, who's since had a fabulous career, uh, but back then he was just a grad student. Um, and I took that class and I was like, oh, this is it. <laughs> like, this, is, this, is, this is what I want to do. So yeah, I, I promptly switched majors. As a reader, what do I want? What do I want a reader to get from a book? I think, I don't know. I feel like I, I go to books because they're the, like the greatest invention we have for feeling what it likes to, is like to be another person, you know, to like, to, to the, it's the best like outside brain simulation that's ever been created. I think novels are. And, uh, and so I guess I would want, I would want that for my readers. I would want them to feel like they had this journey with these two people and experienced what it was like to be them for a little while with all the kind of, you know, empathy that that entails you know so I, I guess just that like the, the experience of reading a novel I think is just a, a is a kind of beautiful when you really think about it, it's a kind of beautiful thing to do so yeah yeah anything else yeah there is an audiobook version it's read by Ari Fliakos who also read the Knicks and he's 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 stunning he's incredible um I highly recommend it yeah yeah Nathan Hill I mean if if, if you're not going to go and buy five books right now you're not really a reader after hearing Nathan talk. Anyway, thank you all for coming. What a glorious evening. Congratulations. I know you've got a long tour ahead of you. I think it's about two months long, it seems like. Um, and we wish you the best of luck forever. Thank you all. <laughs>